Welcome to Love the Words here on East Leeds FM. In a minute, an interview with Phoebe Caldwell, the writer, fascinating new book out now about ageing and communication and isolation and breaking that isolation. Very hopeful and wonderful book, uh, followed by some poems from Chris Fernie, who is new to Love the Words. Welcome to him and followed by a short story by Ros Kendall, who is no stranger to East Leeds FM, all of the words. Happy listening. Love the nouns, love the pronouns, impersonal and personal. Love the words from ELFM. So, you're listening to Love the Words here on East Leeds FM. And today I'm talking to Phoebe Caldwell, who is a writer based up in Craven in North Yorkshire. Uh, hello, Phoebe. Uh, hello, Peter. Very nice to have you with us on Love the Words. And um, you've written a book, you've written a few books. But, but we can talk about them. But your present book is called Out to Grass, and uh, it's a it's a very moving and uh, it's a very moving piece of work, and I think really a piece for our times. So, um, if you could perhaps first of all just talk about the book, how it came about, and the, and talk about the premise of it, if you would. Uh, I live in an old people's home, at least a retirement home with extra care, but it amounts to. Uh, an old people's home. So it's a collection of people. Almost all of us have something wrong um, with us, which has brought us here. Um, my neighbour uh, said to me one day after her husband had died and her daughter and her sister, um, nobody knows who I am now. And I started thinking about loss of, of identity. And I realized that it's extremely easy to lose your sense of self when you move into one of these places. Um, because no matter how hard the staff try, almost all the people you love and who know who you are have died or have moved on or you're, you've moved on. So the book is about loss of identity. And then I came across a piece of um, research which said it was that it, this is in fact one of the things that old people dread most of all. And you'll hear them talking about, um, I was a nurse, I was a teacher, I worked in a factory, I was a lecturer, because they're living in the past and not in the present. And some of them retreat completely and find it very difficult to talk. They actually lose their speech, not because they've got dementia, but because um, uh, they have lost their sense of self. This is very important. So um, I, I thought, well, perhaps we can do something about this. You know, I, I, I live close to her. Um, we're in about 20 yards away, from, 20 foot away from each other. Far enough to be safe for COVID if we put chairs in our uh, respective doorways. And uh, 
So I started to talk to her and I got her to tell me about her life. And um, it was astonishing. It really was absolutely astonishing. It was a revelation. I thought it would be about farming because she was from a farming family. And when she first came here, her husband was alive and he was a, an agricultural engineer. Um, but it was, but then it turned out that a lot of our relatives had worked on the Ribblehead Viaduct. And so we moved on to the railways. And um, we then, uh, some of them had helped dig the um, Blaymore Tunnel. <laughs> and there were extraordinary experiences started to come out. And sort of intimate ones like, you know, you had to be very careful of your hat when you were working on the viaduct because the wind would blow it off and it cost five shillings and you could, that was a week's wage and you couldn't afford another one. And she produced some uh, cuttings uh, which were the pay slips uh, for her great her grandfather and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So it was so interesting. And she told me a lot about the sort of local customs and the terrible time she'd had when they got married and uh, some cousins of her husband, her new husband, smeared the car with lard uh, completely. And it took them three days trying to get in and out of this car and not spoil their wedding clothes, their honeymoon clothes and get enough hot water. They couldn't find anywhere with enough hot water to wash it off. So this sort of detail into, oh, the a wonderful story. She, she went to Liverpool after the, um, after the Blitz, after our Blitz, and there was a bath. She hadn't realized because being in the country where we are, it, they didn't really have much experience of the war. Occasionally planes would go over the top and they didn't really um, have much experience. And there were, uh, she went in on the, road that her uncle, the street her uncle lived in, had been bombed. And he was there, he had what was called an urban farm. He had cows in Liverpool in a barn, um, which delivered fresh milk, because the milk which came from the countryside was often sour by the time it got to the um, users. So anyway, there was this bath in the middle of the room, being blown into the middle of the bath, and everything, you know, like the plug, the taps had been pinched. But it was sitting there looking rather lonely in the middle of a pile of rubble where it had been blown. She said, I, I did begin to realize what war was, what it was all about. Very few people, <clears throat> not many people who were actually involved in wartime because a lot of them were country uh, people. Um, one or two of them were in the army. Um, but um, very few had sort of direct experience of it. Anyway, uh, I, I thought this was really interesting. And by that time, other people were interested. So I went on and we, I went through about 19, I think I've said 20, but I think it was 19 of us all together. And I wasn't um, an observer. I was a participant. Um, uh, I was not using recording. It was a, they were intimate conversations. And uh, it was really extraordinary how beautiful some of the stories were. Some of them very funny, uh, some of them very poignant, 
Mm. Some of them were tragic. One or two had been brutally treated as children. Um, some of the humor really shone through um, the stories. I couldn't do everybody because it would have been a, a library rather than a book. Yes, of course. <clears throat> I mean, but, yes, I, I quite understood. I mean, but you, you, you could have, you could have filled many books. But I mean, what I think what's what's also lovely about the book is that it's not just transcripts of of people's stories there's also there are also your own interventions in terms of writing you've written a really interesting uh preface but also you've you, your voice kind of interpolates itself into the in, into the book and and you have a very direct way of talking about aging which i found well, you know, beautiful, but also challenging. <laughs> I was going to say, if you just find it beautiful, you would have read the same book. <laughs> no, I think it's beautiful because it because it is so straight and challenging, and and it, and it's right. it, no, you you don't attempt to to um, prettify the the less beautiful parts of aging, uh, but it's uh, you you speak with great conviction, but also um, I think that as you say, the detail in the book is really fascinating and. And I think that's what makes it. it's not just about there are very few. There is nothing that that smacks of banality or cliche in the book. It really is. It is full of detail and rich in that respect. I mean, can, maybe just going to ask you a little about your life's work, because you've written other books, but also you've you, your work seems to have been in a different area, but but very much about communication. Yeah, um, I think I've written about 14 books, but I'm slightly off. You know, lost. The last three have been about aging. My present one, which I've just finished, is the one after Arctobras, is about my mad great aunt, who was the first European woman in the Himalayas and attracted a great deal of attention. Completely scandalous lady, very funny. But um, I'm, my, my life. I had I married and had five children very happily. Then my husband died young. And I was already started on working in the local hospital for people with what they call mental handicap at the time, what's now known as disability issues, that sort of thing. Um, and uh, I knew nothing at all. I was thrust in a a room full of men with um, extreme behavioral challenges. And I was standing in the, um, uh, the sort of doorway and there was a long passage and watching the chairs go one way and the tables go the other way and chaps putting their arms through the windows. And it was a, a very salutary experience. This was about 45 years ago. And really nothing was known honestly, about autism. People were just really, it was in the 19, 1950s, 40s, 50s, people were really just starting to think about how you could communicate with people who had speech difficulties, who some of whom were extremely aggressive, uh, some of whom, all of whom were frightened. And uh, they were in these big hospitals where staffed mainly by ex, um, I, who were themselves traumatized, 
Um, and, you know, basically it was, if they move, you know, sit on them, that sort of thing. It, it was really, it was very scary indeed. It attracted the best and the, and the most, the worst in the way of staff. Um, the sort of thing I heard was, you know, I don't know why you bother with them. If I shout at them, they sit down, you know. And uh, I, I thought I'm not going to last more than a week or two if, if I don't do something about this. So I, start, I talked to a psychologist who was a New Zealander, and she said, well, the one thing you can do is, we don't know really very much about it, is look and see what people enjoy. If they enjoy anything like one chap was fixated on trains, another on bottles, another on light bulbs. One had been brought up in a, a, a grocer's shop and another in a pub. So this long corridor with benches all the way along, each person with their own little bench, and a, a catalogue for to, to turn over. They were supposed to do that all day. So I looked at what each one was interested in, and I started to design and make equipment. And then I painted the room. So I painted it the background to each desk related to their um, to their special interest. So for example, there was a, a chap who'd been brought up in a pub. And so we had a bar with big golden handles and a nice big blousy um, barmaid. And he loved putting his head on people's um, hearts. So he would go and put his head on the, his, this woman's heart as she leant over the counter. But it, they came to life about a there were about 11 or 12 of them, something like that. They changed a bit and um, they started talking. Five of them were talking by the time I left, five of the 11 who couldn't talk. Mm. Um, and really it related to the pictures. And one of them came in one day, we had night at one end and we had day at the other. And one of them came in and he put his hand on the, a picture of one fight. He looked at me, he said, hot. I thought, right, if you can say hot, you can say a lot of other things. Mm -hmm. So we, we, we went from there. And uh, gradually people used to come in uh, from other places to see what was happening because I was able to communicate with these chaps in a way that schools and, and residential places and hospitals and so forth were not. And so I made films. Fortunately, I had a son-in-law at the time who was a filmmaker. So mm. we made films. And gradually it got better and started writing books and it just escalated. And then it got really too big for the place I was in. And um, I looked for a, a, a wider job. And I got one in the hospital mm. in Bristol. Sounds extraordinary. I, I worked at about five of the different hospitals in Bristol till I got the sack. <laughs> well, that was because the ethos changed. Right. Everything had to be perfectly normal. But the trouble is, by then I was working particularly with people with autism, and a lot of the things about normal environment are actually making the autism worse. That is, bright lights like you've got in your room, you know, white lights and that sort of thing, strip mm. lights particularly, noise, that sort of thing. So they're all made things in the normal environment. You really have to cut down on. 
And I started to, I was very lucky, I was apprenticed to a psychologist and a clinical psychologist in Wales, a man called Gary Ephraim. And he had started uh, using body language to communicate with people who couldn't, who were struggling to, um, to communicate. And he talked to uh, several people, one of them a man called Dave Hewitt and myself, and um, he mo 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 monitored me for a long, four years, I think. And I learned to use, to, to, uh, to interact with people through body language and to read body language, which isn't always the same as what people say, because mm. they can say something, but their body language is telling you something different. And uh, well, I could go on for, weeks on this oh so i mean it, it sounds like your your whole your entire life's work really has been about eliciting speech yes from, it has basically and that yeah. this book is really a continuation of that is that it would be would it be true to say that i mean i know the people that you're i i think that's absolutely true because what what's so important in the book is that each chapter the voice is quite different. And you say, I enter, enter, intervene and say, well, usually that's in order to keep the thing going. Um, because as I say, some people actually find speech quite difficult. Um, the principal protagonist, um, who we started with, she really could hardly speak at all when I, we first started to talk. Mm. But she, uh, people became much more fluent if one sort of, so, you know, it, it, it was an interaction rather than a, um, uh, a list. I tried to avoid. Um, uh, so, so in terms of the book, I mean, I, I mean, it's very. You're very clear, and, and I say, and as I said, there there is a great deal of very of moving testimony in the book. But it, and I suppose, with it all testifies to is what you you said earlier about the individuality of of us all and uh you know how in it, you know in contravention really of the of the image of older people being and you, you talk about them being clumped together as the old and how dehumanizing and how de-individualizing that is but all these stories speak of people who are very much in possession of their own sense of self and you talk about yeah. yourself and you... that gets lost and it, it's absolutely tragic um because everybody there's absolutely no question the only person who said i i i can't really tell you my fascinating stories had had to sign a confidentiality agreement and in that way that was a story in itself <laughs> you know, um, a story of our time but um everybody's voice rings different in, in the, I enjoyed writing this book. I thought it was, it, it, it was great. I was going to say fun. It was more than that. It took me right into people's lives, particularly one or two of them. And I learned a great deal too from a particular um, Pam, um, uh, who allowed me into her inner life without really doing anything at all, but what, the way she said it, what she, the poems she produced, and so forth, it, it was a, a most wonderful re revelation. And it changed my life, and I made a lot of friends. 
Mm. And I think it's a good book, and I think it's a really necessary book, because we need it's something that needs to be thought about. How do we preserve people's individuality when they're old? They're not just a collection of people. They are individuals, um, and it is desperately needed necessary to, to preserve this uh, for them. Otherwise, they, they, they slide into a sort of infirmity, yeah. which um, isn't really, um, it's not part of them. It's a sort of mask or it's, it's they're so happy when they're talking about the, the funny things and the, even the sad things. Absolutely. And, and I think it's the power of, of the listener, isn't it? Just, you must have just said, just talk to me, tell me, tell me something. And you're the trust that the, in, obviously that you engendered in, in those relationships enabled them to speak. One of the ones which was a good starter was, uh, tell me about your first day at school. Almost all of them remembered that. Yes. Although it doesn't appear in the in the book every time. Um, almost all of them remembered that. And you've got to start with something. Not some of our memories are very bad, and some of some one or two could hardly speak at all. Um, but my own memory is not that brilliant. But you, if you start with a, a very concrete thing, that one everybody remembered. And some some of the stories are so poignant. The little boy who was coming back from America with his mother, when, and he was so very very small, but he remembered being. It was a small boat too, you know, crossing the Atlantic, and he remembered being put inside a coil of rope, um, so that he wouldn't slide off the deck, you know, like a sort of playpen. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, I've never heard no. uh, uh, that story before. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Yes, yes, absolutely. And you couldn't, as they say, you couldn't make that up. You couldn't possibly make it up. I set it aside about my own story of crossing the Atlantic in 1941 when we were being chased by U-boats. And there's these terrible crashes. And I ran up on deck and the sailor said, oh, don't worry, we're just fishing. And I looked over this. He said, look over the side. And I looked over the side and there were these enormous fish about the size of a bus um, floating white up, upside down. Um, uh, it, they must have been stunned by the depth charges. And I thought they, those two stories, um, they're both stories which I've never heard anyone else or anywhere else before. Nobody I've ever talked to has heard about this effect of, um, you know, a, a part of Wales being stunned by um, uh, devastating charges. Also, Phoebe, just to, just to, before we ask about the book and, and, and where you can get hold of it, because I think people will want to read it, having heard about it, um, yeah, you, you still meet with the people that you interviewed, I, I, in the book, you talk about how you get together. So it's not just leaving them there with that, but you, you're, you're still friends, you still meet together. Well, we haven't done an enormous amount of meeting together because of the various yeah. COVID. Yeah. Um, we, we have various uh, things um, here, like a discussion group, but again, we've had to cancel that because people have been here. Trouble is, 
actually people are very fragile here. The turnover is high. Yeah. My principal um, who started this has had to move on because she had a very bad accident and she needed more care. Mm -hmm. uh, one, of our, uh, one of us has died. Yeah. And um, so, you know, I had to self-publish to get it published quickly because in fact, I couldn't guarantee that several of them, several of us would be still here. Yeah. Um, but for example, I have a plum tree, which is in somebody else's garden, which was planted uh, when I had to move here. And I said I was going to miss my plum tree. So we grew a plum tree in his garden. And I had the plums the other day. So I took plums around to all the people who um, were um, in the book, at least one or two were missing. But, um, and I do see them, you know, we see each other. I do spend a lot of time writing there. I'm, I'm on my own and I'm very happy doing this. Mm. Um, but we, I think I would speak for the others. We feel differently. I'm giving a talk in the library about this on Friday, this book, and it's going to be an opportunity for us all to miss, mix, meet up together. I think we meet on different terms. We meet as friends rather than us. Um, it's a great thing to do to be in a situation. I mean, it's a lesson for us all. You find yourself in a, in a new situation with people you don't know. Ask them some questions. Ask them yeah, about their lives. Absolutely. Ask them <laughs> you know, um, uh, very simple questions. So Phoebe, how do we get hold of the book? It's called Act to Grass. It's it's called Challenging the it's in subtitled Challenging the A of the Old Age Stereotype. It's it's published and, by Fisher O Press. You say it's self-published, but how do how do we um, uh, you have to email me? Email which is you. Phoebe, and that's P-H-O-E-B-E -E dot Caldwell C-A-L-D-W-E-L-L -L -L, at outlook.com. And you will send it to people. I will send them. it. And yes. it's about it's twelve pounds. It is now. I'm going to have to have it reprinted in a smaller run. I may have to put another pound on it because he's going to charge me more to um, do a, a smaller rerun. Well, uh, unless it, it really takes off. Uh, it's gone very well locally, um, but uh, the per one of the people I was really pleased took it was a. Uh, team leader for um, social services and said she thought it would be useful for her team to um, read. Yeah. Um, and I would like to get it out more into that area um, mm -hmm. because I think it is, it, it's a social problem which isn't really being addressed. No, absolutely. And of course, it links with all sorts of really, really uh, present challenges at the moment, including, you know, government social care policy just yes it, it fits in with an awful everything and uh, I, i'd like to finish uh, off with a quote you you uh, quote um saint francis and the sow which is a great uh, poem. yes galway canal but as you say as the poem saint francis and the sow by galway canal francis uh, galway canal yes yeah this is the time when we need quote reminding of how beautiful we are that yes that is the reality of our inner strengths. And I, as we're talking about old age here, and I think that the book does that very beautifully. And I do congratulate you on it. Thank you. There is just one more thing which you could put in somewhere or not. But, um, you know, most of the books which are written about old age at the present are written by 40 year olds who are <laughs> worried about the first wrinkle. 
And, um, you know, you see these in magazines and journals and so forth, and you don't see anything really written about and by the old, old and we don't, we're not listening to really old people's voices. Most of us are 80s or 90s, yeah. one or two young but Most of us are quite old. We've all got some sort of infirmity of some sort. Well, thank you so much. It also ties in, of course, to the whole sort of, a, uh, to use a rather horrible phrase, uh, a loneliness agenda. But uh, and and uh, that it, it ties into so many things and uh, that are really important. And, and again, thank you, Phoebe Caldwell. I'm going to repeat that email address, and we'll put it also on the podcast entry. If you listen to the Love the Words podcast. Um, if you subscribe to that, I will put it on the, the post so you can see it. But it's phoebe.caldwell at outlook.com. That's it, yes. Definitely. And I do a reply. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I know you do, yes. And you do send out very quickly because you uh, within... Well, you know why? Because <laughs> if I don't, I forget. <laughs> oh, I lose track of it. <laughs> Love the cases, love the clauses, love the adverbs and the antecedents, love the words. From ELFM. Lost by Letter Days. Three poems written in the time of COVID-19 by Chris Fernie. Birdwatching, Easter 2020. Starlings have a look on the telephone lines. Their high wire act is now a memoration. When Cummins ask, the world will be puzzle wonderful if there is a world at all. Above me is a circus of circling crows Cockyving masters whipping the still air. No murmuration for them, no mass fly past, rather a cackling big top in a babel tree. All the telephone lines are silent, silent. Silence as a mute mockingbird miming a plea, a plea in Cohenesque truth and beauty. I have tried in my way to be free. St. George's Day, 2020. A daydream. Hark the approaching drum. Tum, tum, tum. Tum, tum, tum. Listen to the pounding beat. Listen to the stomping feet. Dancing to the mystic tune of rising sun and waxing moon. Hark the shaking tambourine. Dressed in light and rustic green. See the ribbons fly and flutter around the dancers in the gutter. Look at the playful Morris folks, meadow maids and bawdy blokes. Hark the clashing of the sticks, see the twirls and fancy tricks, hear the tapping of the shoes, music of an ancient muse. Follow the rhythm, pub to pub, fill yourself with beer and grub. Celebrate spring with jingling bells, dress with flowers the wishing wells, Dance for life and dance for love. Praise the earth and heaven above. Let your mind and body sway to the silent sounds 
or St George's Day. Remembrance Day 2020. Two minutes without drum beats and marching feet. Two minutes of heartbeats and silent strolls with the family ghosts. Two minutes too minute to forget. A Mother's Love by Ros Kendall The soothsayer warned me of this day. I didn't believe it then, but I can't deny it now. Thirty years of plotting and manoeuvring. Have those actions laid the foundations for today? I sent a message last night, expecting a reply which would usually be ambiguous or veiled, but now there is no mistaking his unequivocal response. Servants surround me, but will be of little help. Perhaps they relish the next scene. I won't ask for assistance. I'm too proud to have them turn away, as they have every right to do. No, here is my chance to be remembered for all time as the matriarch, scheming for her offspring, forging a dynasty, stabilising an empire. Now comes the sacrifice I have long feared, yet for which I have made little preparation. Each family member was a stepping stone, one pebble placed on top of another, always creeping to reach the top of the pile. Push one under, that, or struggle to raise a head and avoid drowning. So was the world at, at the time. Battles fought for lands alien to us, lifetimes away, north in the bitter weather or south in the searing heat. We wanted more, and through our magnificence, we got it. We got it all. But a tower can fall once one brick falters or is drawn aside. Rome was the epicentre, all too perilously balanced to stay intact, certainly as the glory years rolled by. I tried. My family connections on both sides deserved this, and one victory after another proved I had the wit, the intellect, the cunning to survive and thrive. Finally, my son became emperor. My feeble husband was relieved of his duties by my own hand. He had no courage for the ravages of Roman politics, much less the stomach. Had he been astute, he would have instructed slaves to taste his food first and might have lived longer, though not many more months. I had plans which excluded the old man. Surprisingly, I had some affection for him. Claudius, my third husband, after subjugation to two earlier brutes. But his son was the problem, claiming a direct royal line from his frail father, my boy had much more royal blood in his veins, the Julians and the Germanicans, and, at three years older than my stepson, was entitled to the honour, one way or another. To eliminate rivals, one needs assistance. Mine had been swift, accurate and undetected. The nation mourned my husband, or went through the traditional motions of grief, 
albeit wondering if a worse leader would emerge. At last my own son was crowned, showing qualities of both his parents. His father was long dead. With me as his mentor, what could go wrong? Our likenesses were imprinted on coins. We sat side by side at state events. He deferred to my opinions and even took my advice when the time came to choose a wife. I thanked the gods I was here to influence his life while ignoring those silly adolescent tantrums, times when he threatened to run away to become a poet or an actor. It was easy to talk him round, but once a man, his choices were his own. So at one state occasion, when Seneca whispered in his ear that he should banish his mother, I was shocked. But he did. He took my arm and walked me to the door. He gripped me harder than I expected. I left without demur, allowing him time to reflect. Who else could offer such sensible views as I? Although he kept me at arm's length, I knew time was on my side, and I should be patient. He despised his wife. She was pregnant, but he was unsure if he was the father of her child. I was too, and sowed more seeds of doubt, so she too would be discarded, and he would return to me for solace. Fifteen years after his coronation, he invited me to join him on holiday at the Bay of Fiumicino, we had our own households, and it was only a short boat trip across the bay. We could meet each other to walk and dine together. He was troubled, but I was certain I could calm his nerves and pacify him. No more looking over your shoulder. You are a mighty emperor. Your word is sacrosanct. You can do whatever you wish with my power and authority behind you. Dinner was perfect. He'd remembered my liking for fish. It was excellent, as were the lighter wines of Germany, my birthplace, rather than the heavy reds of Italy. He drank anything and everything, but for once the event was civilised. No rampaging through the villa, stoning tethered animals, no battering the slower servants or raping slaves. The evening ended quietly, as my son placed a protective arm around my shoulder and led me to the launch. It was the same boat I had travelled in earlier to cross to my son. I felt happy and sleepy. The sky was barely dark when a commotion tipped the boat to one side. I screamed but heard no other calls in the dusk. It was as if I was deserted in my calamity. The crew must have been alarmed, but there were no shouts to help. With an almighty splash, I fell from the side of the boat into the bay. It was calm, although the shock made me squeal. After gasping momentarily, I soon realised the water was temperate. I tore my shawl from my body, kicked off my slippers and struck out as I'd been taught in childhood, heading for the shoreline. The lamps in my villa were still lit, and I made them my focus. Dragging myself onto the beach, I stared back at the boat. It floated still, half submerged but no longer listing. 
I waited many minutes to see if anyone else had survived the capsize. Drusilla, my maid, had never learned to swim, though I expected to see the boat handlers swimming to shore. Were they still clinging to the wreckage of the launch? I heard no cries, so finally I trailed up the path to my home. Was it relief or surprise I spotted on the faces of my servants? They snatched at woolen blankets and embraced me in an attempt to provide warmth and comfort. I soon regained normal temperature, but reassurance would take longer to come. I sent a runner to my son's villa. I knew it would take hours and didn't expect to reply before dawn. My message was, there was a difficulty with the boat, but I am at home without injury. What did I want him to say? His nature was without compassion. Perhaps I was already prepared for a dismissive response rather than an invitation to recuperate with him. Was I now, at forty-four years old, dispensable to my own child? Sleep never came, and at break of day I breakfasted on my staple fare of fruit, bread and honey. I began to fret as I waited for his reply. However, before noon, my fate was sealed when four guards arrived. My maid had drowned the night before, so they approached me direct, with arrogant stares, without even basic courtesies. I rose from my seat at the dining table. It was obvious what their brief was. "'Kill me now,' I said, and they had the decency to look shocked. "'I know my son. You have been instructed to strike me down, yes?' They nodded. "'Use the sword,' I said. "'Leave the axe.' I am an old woman, there is no need for such force. They looked at each other, confused. These were soldiers, under orders, and I had no wish they should be killed because they had ignored an imperial command. Strike here, I said, indicating my womb. He can cause me no more suffering or pain than on the day of his birth. Love the haiku, love the sonnet, love the quatrain and the couplet, love the words, from East Leeds FM. Finally, on Love the Words tonight... The soundtrack to a short documentary. The documentary was made a few years ago. It follows seven young folk musicians from the British Isles walking across the accursed mountains, as they're called, uh, in that region. They're playing their own music in pubs and hostels along the way, but also collaborating with local musicians in those three different countries. The expedition was organised by the Balkan Peace Park project. I was there as well, and I recorded these sounds. 
Sunday on the right who saw a spider on the floor and recoiled and put her feet on the table, but her eyes were on the spider, but still kept on playing. control love the command love the space bar and the hard return love the words from east leeds fm <laughs> <laughs>